welcome to Not Just a Sports Report. G'day and welcome to Not Just a Sports Report. Today it is all about jumping in to the UFC Vegas 62 card, featuring a very intriguing main event in the women's flyweight division. We've got Alexa Grasso, Vivian Araujo, uh, and this is going to be potentially a number one contenders fight. We know that all the women ranked in front of these two. Uh, have already had a title shot at the champion and have been unsuccessful. So this does have implications as far as future title shots go. And of course, UFC Vegas 62 taking place inside the UFC Apex in Las Vegas. Got some other interesting matches. Uh, men's flyweight division, Brandon Rawdog Royval up against Askar Askarov. We've got the uh, co-main event, sorry. Fucking can't even speak English, about a minute and a half in. Uh, we've got Cup Swanson, who's a featherweight legend. He is moving down in down to the Bantamweight division to take on Jonathan Martinez, who hasn't really, you know, been able to pull the trigger in terms of finishing guys, but Martinez has slowly and steadily been working his way through the rankings at 135. And now a crucial test for Jonathan Martinez. We've got a stacked card. I'm going to be going through the preliminary card and of course the main card. So now there is not much else to do but launch straight into it. This is the Not Just a Sports Report UFC Vegas 62 preview and predictions. With that being said, let's fucking get amongst it. UFC Vegas 62 kicks off with welterweight action as, quite frankly, one of the roguest members of the UFC roster of all time, Mike Jackson, makes his fourth UFC appearance up against Pete Dead Game Rodriguez. Now, for Mike Jackson, he returned this past April for his first fight since 2018, where he defeated the formidable, badass, the guy that everyone was ducking, Mr. CM Punk himself, in one of the most tragic fights I think I've ever seen. I mean, I can hark back to grade 8 at school and watching two grade 8 kids punch on, and I was probably more entertained and more impressed with the skill set. So, look, we haven't seen Mike Jackson in a while, up until his return, up against Dean Barry, but... Yeah, the CM Punk fight, that sticks with a lot of people. Mike Jackson beating CM Punk. Now, I'll get to that result being overturned in a moment. But Jackson, look, he entered that fight up against CM Punk 0-1. That was his professional record. Zero wins, one loss, which was a submission loss to Mickey Gall. So Mike Jackson made his pro mixed martial arts debut inside the UFC, uh, just a really strange set of circumstances, and 
the strangeness really didn't end there. Now, Mike, he came into the fight against CM Punk and he won it with ease. He coasted to a decision. And look, Mike Jackson, he decided not to chase the finish. Uh, He did mention about smoking weed after. And it was a blazed performance. It was a bloke, like, who looked like he was fucking high. Like, he could have easily finished CM Punk. CM Punk, uh, uh, look, it wasn't WrestleMania, that's for sure. CM Punk was on fucking skates. He did not look, did not look well. And Mike Jackson was just kind of fucking around. It was literally like he smoked a bong before he actually came out for the fight. So Mike Jackson throughout that fight, it was kind of like, Come on, dude, put Sam Punk out of his misery. He didn't, uh, and he just pretty much coasted to a decision win. However, the result was overturned due to Mike testing positive for marijuana, quite possibly the least performance-enhancing drug of all time. So that result overturned. Poor Mr. Mike Jackson, his only win up to that point, overturned for smoking weed. And that just capped off the absolute shit show that was CM Punk's MMA career. Then, after nearly four years between bouts, Mike the Truth Jackson returned in April of this year, and he took on Irish standout Dean Barry. Now, this fight was marred by several fouls from Dean Barry. We saw a kick to the groin, and the fight ultimately ended in disqualification due to an eye gouge from Dean Barry. So, Mike the Truth Jackson, how's this? He enters Vegas this weekend with three professional bouts to his name and one of the strangest records we've ever seen inside the UFC. Mike Jackson has one win via disqualification. He has one loss, which was a 45-second submission loss, and he has one no contest. A win against CM Punk, of all fucking people, overturned for marijuana. So, that tells me about all I need to know about CM Punk's fighting credentials. He couldn't even beat a bloke who fucking was either blazed or just at least had it in his system. Now, heading into this weekend, is Mike Jackson finally going to get a regular contest with a normal result or are more shenanigans on the cards. This opener isn't just about Mike Jackson, though, because Mike's opponent this weekend is Tuscan, Arizona's Pete Deadgame Rodriguez, who returns to action after stepping in on short notice up against Australia's Jack Della Maddalena at the start of this year. Now, that was such an uphill battle for Pete Rodriguez, who did show a lot of promise prior to getting the call-up, Uh, But to face someone the caliber of Jack Della Maddalena on short notice, it's a tough ask. I'm I'm telling you right now, Jack Della, he is probably the main one in that welterweight division who isn't ranked that I really think can make a run of significance. This time around though, the heavy hitter Pete Rodriguez has a full camp behind him and a much easier opponent with all respect to Mike Jackson. Now, no fight in the UFC is ever easy, quote-unquote, but Mike Jackson must have one of the worst records inside the promotion. I don't think anyone else is rolling around 1-1 and 1-0 contest with their one win 
being a disqualification. So uh, that probably is the worst record inside the UFC. Not that mine would be better. Like mine would probably be 0, 3 and 0, just straight up. So I'm not here to hate, but like this is the biggest stage in mixed martial arts. And we've got a 37-year-old who's won, won and won no contest. Just trying to make sense of that. Now, prior to matching up with Jack Della, Pete Rodriguez was on an absolute tear, winning all four of his pro bouts leading into his debut, with all four of those being first round knockouts. Pete hits hard as a motherfucker, believe me. I mean, I haven't been hit by him, but I've got a pretty good eye for who can fucking hit hard. And Pete Rodriguez, he is right up there. I was watching his tape, and a couple of the blokes that Pete knocked out, they were laying lifeless on the mat. Like, it wasn't like a knockout. They certainly weren't getting up to protest. Like, that. no, fake stoppage, fake stoppage. Like, they were on the mat, and it was kind of grim. It was like, holy fuck, hopefully these dudes are okay. So when Pete, when he knocks these guys out, he doesn't just knock them out. He sends them to the shadow realm. The fast and brutal finishes are exactly what catapulted Rodriguez onto the UFC stage, where he now finds himself looking to avenge his first career loss. Now, peculiar events seem to take place every time Mike Jackson enters the octagon, so this should be a very, very intriguing way to kick off the action. Now what I'm going to do is jump into the profiles of both fighters, and I'll start with Pete Dead Game Rodriguez. Pete is 25 years old, from Arizona, and he will be representing his gym, Dominate MMA. As far as his style, Rodriguez is a heavy-handed striker. As I mentioned, he doesn't just knock guys out, he sends them to the shadow realm. That, not quite reflected in his UFC record, which stands at no wins and one loss. As for Mike The Truth Jackson, he is 37 years old from Houston, Texas, representing 4 Ounce Fight Club. Mike Jackson is predominantly a boxer. Striking is definitely his kind of specialty. I mean, we saw when he was on the ground with CM Punk, albeit that quite a few years ago now. He didn't, there wasn't really like anything going on in those exchanges. So Mike Jackson, predominantly a boxer, with a UFC record and an overall professional record of one win, one loss, and one no contest. Now, looking at some of the numbers that Mike Jackson has racked up over his now three appearances, he has 56% striking accuracy and 2.91 significant strikes absorbed per minute. So he's absorbing just under three big strikes per minute, and Mike Jackson has to be really careful in terms of that because Pete Rodriguez does not need too many opportunities to knock him out cold. Now, having a quick squeeze at the advantages, there's going to be a sizable discrepancy in both height and reach that will favor the older Mike Jackson. Now, as far as experience, neither of these guys possesses a ton of pro mixed martial arts experience. And for Mike Jackson, his three fights have been spread out over six years. So that's only one fight every two years. So any experience he's gaining, 
it's kind of, you know, detracted given that he only fights very irregularly. Whereas for Pete Rodriguez, he's kind of like crammed that into a much smaller time frame. He's competed nine times in the time it's taken Mike Jackson to fight three times with five professional bouts and four amateur outings in the lead up to Pete Rodriguez's fight this weekend. Sticking on the theme of the advantages, the level of activity definitely favours Pete Rodriguez a lot more active. Power advantage goes to Pete Rodriguez as well. He just hits so damn hard. Whereas all I've really seen from Mike Jackson is the kind of fighting that I expect from a bloke who's literally been ripping cones before he comes out. So a little bit less power, a little bit less urgency. And I think when it comes to power, Pete Rodriguez clearly the more powerful of the two. I also think Rodriguez is the better grappler, although we haven't had a huge sample size in that department. It looks striking. That could be the area where Mike Jackson does have an advantage, but it's, it's hard to tell. We'll have to wait until they're actually in the octagon. Level of competition, it's hard. it favours Mike Jackson, I guess. Like, he's fought decent guys. Uh, but in terms of, like, if you just had to pick one who was the hardest level of competition, it's Jack Della. So Pete Rodriguez, he's coming off a test that I don't think Mike Jackson has been subjected to. And if that can, you know, if Pete can really add to that, well, that's going to make him a lethal force. The thing for Pete Rodriguez, though, that doesn't impress me a great deal, the combined record of Pete's opponents prior to landing in the UFC, four wins and 13 losses. So it was certainly a huge step up to go from four wins, 13 losses, combined record of opponents to someone like Jack Della Maddalena, who is on a double-digit winning streak. So they've obviously kind of brand Pete back a few notches and said, okay, Jack Della was clearly an uphill battle. Who, who can we pick? And they pick Mike Jackson. And again, respectfully, I mean, you're not going to get, at least on paper, an easier matchup than that. Looking at the Tapology Worldwide Welterweight Rankings, uh, doesn't seem like either of these guys are going to crack the top 15 ever. Maybe Pete Rodriguez, but yeah, it looks a long shot that either of these guys do anything. Uh, Pete Rodriguez, again, more likely. He's ranked 182nd in the world for welterweights, whilst Mike Jackson is ranked 239th. So there's 238 better welterweights worldwide than Mike Jackson at the moment. Going to be pretty tricky to crack the top 15 at 37 years old. What a, what a rogue matchup this is to open the card. But I am excited to see how it all plays out. Now, checking my notes, we've got the streaks of both men. For Pete Rodriguez, four wins in his past five outings. Although, as I mentioned, like, up until Jack Della De Maddalena, which was the one loss in his last five, he was, I don't want to say cans, but like, he wasn't fighting anyone of note. The only loss up to a bona fide stud, but all four wins against much weaker opposition than what's on offer inside the UFC. As for Mike Jackson, well, 
Look, this guy is unbeaten since 2016, if you want to look at it that way. Now, finish factor for this one is high. Rodriguez, a knockout specialist. And Mike Jackson, he likes to coast. He doesn't really chase the finish. But I believe that Pete is going to force a fight out of the truth. Quickly pop into a couple of talking points, and then I'll jump through both men's professional records. Uh, I wrote down for talking points, is Mike Jackson just going to take his time and Pete, uh, pick, fucking crikey, pick Pete Rodriguez apart from range? That's kind of what Jack Della Maddalena did. He didn't rush it. He just fucking landed like every shot he was throwing. And Pete Rodriguez, he was busted up within like a minute of the fight starting. But that's Jack Della Maddalena. Mike Jackson doesn't have that same power, but he does potentially have the same kind of accuracy and ability to land. So for Mike Jackson, is he going to pick Pete Rodriguez apart at range? I think that's his plan, but yeah, he's not on the same level as Jack Della. Still, though, has potential to cause Rodriguez some headaches on the feet. Now let's get into the professional records. Mike Jackson, I've mentioned it a few times because it's just... I'm flabbergasted, to be honest. Mike Jackson's pro record, one win, one loss, and one marijuana-induced no contest. Now, his one win, a disqualification for eye gouging. So on the pro record, his only ever win is one disqualification. He's got the no contest up against CM Punk. Like, what? What the fuck? This is kind of one of the funnier and more enjoyable careers I think I've ever seen in the UFC. Uh, and of course, his career kicked off being submitted by Mickey Gall. Now, for Pete Rodriguez, he has a professional record standing at four wins and one loss. Four knockout wins, all of them coming under two and a half minutes. Pete Rodriguez has a TKO, TKO sorry, win that took 10 seconds. He also has a 41-second knockout win. And that one loss in his career, the knockout up against Jack Dalla. Now, heading into this fight, the bounce-back factor has got to be high for both fighters. They haven't had, you know, a great deal of success. They're not even in the top 100 welterweights. For Mike Jackson, he's not even in the top 200 welterweights. So the bounce-back factor is high. Jackson... He needs a statement victory, whether it's a knockout win, a submission, or a decision. Let's just get something that's not a disqualification win. And for Pete Rodriguez, well, he's hoping to respond in emphatic fashion after losing on debut. Now, stylistically, I'm expecting this one to take place mostly on the feet. With Mike the Truth Jackson, he is a cool customer, but he leaves himself open to strikes quite often. And he's going to need to bring a lot more urgency with him to Vegas if the truth wants to walk away victorious. I'm expecting Pete Rodriguez to be calculated with one goal in mind. Knock Mike Jackson the fuck out. A loss for Pete Rodriguez to Mike Jackson, that most likely spells the end of his tenure inside the UFC. I think if Rodriguez loses here, now, I don't know what the contra uh, contractual situation is, but I'd expect you lose to Mike Jackson and you get cut. So for Pete Rodriguez, this does shape as a must-win clash. Now, on the betting market, head-to-head, -head, Pete Rodriguez is the $1.14 favorite. 
which that is no value at all. Mike Jackson, $6 head to head. Not saying put your money on Mike Jackson, but that's disappointing. I was hoping there would be more value. $1.14 for a guy whose combined record of opponents up until the UFC was like a seriously losing record. And he's at $1.14, having not shown anything at the top level other than just getting his ass kicked, quite frankly, to an absolute stud in Jack Della. But $1.14, like, come the fuck on, betting betting companies. Like, seriously, grow up. Who the hell, who the hell's going to put money on that? So, yeah, I was a bit upset about that. No value, but anyway... I'm sticking to what I thought was going to happen, regardless of the value. I'm going Pete Rodriguez by knockout. That just seems, it seems like the way it's going to go. And the UFC, I feel like Dana White, who had previously said Mike Jackson was never going to fight in the UFC again. I feel like Dana White's, like Dean Barry, who Mike Jackson faced last time, he was trying to knock Mike Jackson's head clean off. Pete Rodriguez, also a knockout specialist. So I feel like Dana White, he's just trying to get Mike Jackson knocked out. He's like, man, you didn't even try to finish CM Punk. Like, now I'm just going to match you up against guys who are trying to knock you out. So I think, look, they're trying to build Pete Rodriguez up and he needs a knockout win to be able to build himself up. And Mike Jackson, yeah, look, I'm going Pete Rodriguez by knockout. Not much else to say. If Mike Jackson had his heart set on making a run of any significance in the promotion, I think we'd already know by now. And look, the truth doesn't seem to need to fight. He just seems to simply enjoy competing. And that's not a knock on him at all. Like, good on him. Like, he doesn't need to fight by the looks of it. But yeah, I don't really think he's trying to do anything other than just get paid here. So... Pete Rodriguez, he's younger, he's hungrier, he's fighting for his livelihood. With that being taken into account, I have to back Rodriguez here, and it's gotta be by knockout. Pete has way too much power in his hands. I think if he touches Mike Jackson, the truth goes down. I'm taking Pete Rodriguez by knockout. Now, let's get amongst our next contest. Next up, this one is going to be an absolute treat in the flyweight division. We've got two young prospects as they look to take the next step on their journey toward the rankings. It's Japanese standout Tatsuru Taira meeting Dana White Contender Series graduate CJ Vergara. Now, I'll start with Tatsuru Taira, who is on the Not Just the Sports Report one to watch list, which is my compilation of stars that you need to keep an eye on. So Tatsuru Taira, he's a prospect that I'm a huge fan of. He's got the one to watch label written all over him. And at only 22 years of age, Tatsuru boasts an unblemished 11-0 record. Now the Japanese star debuted in May, defeating Carlos Candos, that's a fucking not a name, defeating Carlos Candelario by unanimous decision. Now in that fight, Taira was simply just a cut above his opponent on the night, and he cruised to a victory, extending his unbeaten record. The former Shuto champion has a high ceiling, and I think that Tatsuru could genuinely blossom into a title contender 
over the course of his UFC tenure. Opposing Taira this weekend is former Fury FC star CJ Vergara. Now CJ burst onto the UFC scene just over a year ago, earning a contract on Dana White's contender series with a brutal 47 second finish of Bruno Correa. It was a highly impressive display from Vergara and it immediately put the San Antonio based fighter on the map. Vergara made his official debut late last year, going down by decision up against the more experienced O'Day Osborne. Now, that loss, to be honest, it did take some of the shine off the hype that CJ had built for himself, but Vergara did not waste too much time getting back in the octagon and earning his first win under the UFC banner. CJ bested fellow Dana White Contender Series graduate Claydson Rodriguez this past May, edging out a pretty close split decision victory. Now, with momentum back on his side, CJ enters Vegas this weekend, looking to derail one of the division's biggest hype trains and announce himself as a problem for all his counterparts at 125 pounds. Can CJ steal Tatsuru's thunder, or will Tyera extend his undefeated run to 12 straight? Well, the whole goal of previewing predictions is to try and find the shit out, so let's not leave it on a question. Let's look a little bit deeper and see if we can uncover some answers. Now, jumping onto the profiles, I'll start with CJ Vergara, 31 years old from San Antonio, Texas, and CJ trains at Pete Spratt American Muay Thai. CJ is a striker, and he carries a one-win, one-loss record in the UFC coming into this weekend. Now, for CJ... He does land 5.67 significant strikes per minute, but he absorbs 5.31. Now that's only going off two fights, but look, pretty high output, like he does land quite a few strikes, but he's getting hit by just as many. So it is going to be interesting. We did see on the contender series that if CJ can hit you a couple of times, he can finish it very quickly. Uh, but he does have the tendency as well to leave himself open to strikes. Jumping onto the profile of Tatsuru Taira, 22 years old from Okinawa, Japan, and Taira trains at Paraestra, Okinawa. Taira is a high-level grappler. His submission game is extremely advanced for someone who is only 22 years old, and Tatsuru carries a 1-0 record inside the UFC. Now for Taira, he's got 66% striking accuracy. That's only over a one fight sample size though. And he has three times more significant strikes landed per minute than absorbed. So there is the discrepancy there. Of course for Taira, that's only over the one fight. So it's not the best sample size. Uh, but Taira, he's landing three times as many strikes as he's copping. Whereas Vergara, he's absorbing roughly the same amount of strikes that he is dishing out. Now, that's going to be interesting stylistically. Uh, I do think, you know, Tatsuru Tara, he's a fantastic striker. And if he rocks CJ, I think he's going to look to take him to the ground and submit him. Now, having a squeeze at the advantages, height and reach will favor Tatsuru in this one. And um, as far as experience, 
I think CJ Vergara has that little bit more experience, but not by a great deal. I don't think the experience factor will make a huge difference in this one. Now, for the striking, I'm really interested to find out. I think CJ Vergara actually may just have the edge here in terms of who's hitting harder and whose strikes have more fight-ending potential. But then I do hark back to the fact that he's absorbing as many strikes as he's dishing out, whilst Tatsuro, he is giving out three times more strikes over a one-fight sample size again than he's copying. Now, speed, I give it to Tatsuru Taira. Uh, speed in the fight, I swear I'm not giving out any illegal substances to the Japanese star, don't need to test him. And grappling, I'll give to Tatsuru Taira again. I think he's the far better in the grappling department of the two. Now, jumping in to Tapology's flyweight worldwide rankings, CJ is ranked 26th worldwide, whilst Taira is ranked 23rd. So these two very closely matched. They're on similar journeys and both trying to make a run for the rankings. I think the winner of this moves on to a ranked opponent next. And it should be a really interesting fight because the flyweight division is really starting to gather some steam. For Taira, he rides an 11-fight winning streak into Vegas this weekend, and he is yet to taste defeat, both as a pro and in his one amateur outing, which was also a victory. For CJ Vergara, he has wins in six of his last seven starts, so both men are surfing a wave of great form leading into this meeting. As far as the finish factor, with the flyweight fighters, it's usually a bit lower. Now, they are explosive, they're very quick, uh, but they've got a little bit less power than, say, a light heavyweight or heavyweight. Now, for Tatsuru Taira, look, I think all around, actually, the finish factor for a 125 fight is really high in this case. You have Taira, who's a noted stoppage specialist, particularly when it comes to submissions. And look, CJ Vergara is no stranger to a knockout victory. There's every chance this fight ends inside the distance. But if, I'm very curious how this one does go because, like I mentioned, in the worldwide rankings, they're ranked very close together. I think they're evenly matched. And stylistically, I think this is going to be an absolute beauty. Now, let's get right amongst their professional records, starting with CJ Vergara. He carries a 10-win, 3 losses, and 1 draw record into this weekend. Vergara has 2 first-round finishes, and look, the key statistic here, 6 of CJ's 10 career wins have come by knockout, so 60% of his wins by knockout, has 4 decision wins as well, has never won by submission. So there is the clear clear advantage in the submission department for Taira. And looking at CJ's three losses, two of those three by decision and um, the one submission loss. So he has been submitted, never been knocked out, uh, but I do think we are going to see CJ's submission defense game tested big time here. As far as Tatsuru Taira, his professional record stands at 11-0. and 0. Seven first round finishes for Tatsuru and eight finishes from his 11 victories. He's got five submissions. So 45% of Tatsuru's wins have come by submission. And as far as him looking for the finish, 
I do believe he's going to be chasing the submissions here. Three knockout wins as well, and three decisions on the perfect 11-0 record of Tatsuru Taira. Now, stylistically, I believe Taira is going to test and attempt to exploit the holes in the submission defense game of CJ Vergara, as I've mentioned. But look, Tatsuru, he's going to be tested in his own right, given that he hasn't really faced someone quite like CJ Vergara yet. Vergara is going to press forward with the intention of knocking Tatsuru's block off, and that's a very real possibility. If you saw CJ Vergara's contract-winning Dana White's contender series performance, you would see, like, this guy comes out ready to fuck shit up. And if Tatsuru Taira gets caught a couple of times, he could be in real big trouble. This fight, it's a fantastic pairing, stylistically, and I am really eager to see who ends up in on top, not in top. Jeez, fucking English, whoops-a-daisy. Now, in my opinion, the winner of this fight immediately enters top 15 calculations, so there is a lot at stake in this one. I know it's only the second fight of the card. To be honest, I thought this fight could be a little bit higher. Such a great uh, stylistic pairing. And look, there can only be one winner. Now for Tatsuru Taira, he is on the Not Just a Sports Report one to watch list. But if CJ is to be victorious in this fight, then of course Vegara will claim the one to watch status and overtake Taira, a fighter who many people believe could be a future title contender. As far as my prediction though, he's on the one to watch list for a reason and I'm keen to watch him this weekend. I'm taking Tatsuru Taira by decision. I did go back and forth between submission and decision, but ultimately I expect this to be a really close contest. A fast finish is it's definitely a possibility on both sides, but I have faith that CJ Vergara will be able to defend the submission attempts, and I think he's going to be able to test Taira like no man has before him. Now, as far as how I see this playing out, I think the smaller octagon gives the edge to grapplers, which of course is the specialty for Taira. I expect Tatsuru to weather the early storm, surviving a barrage of strikes from Vergara before Tatsuru gains momentum and kind of just controls the bout against the cage and on the mat. Now I think he's going to be throwing up plenty of submission attempts, but look, CJ's going to be having spent his whole camp trying to defend these attempts, and I think with the knowledge that CJ has gained over the camp, he's going to be able to get out of these submission attempts. However, I think ultimately control time and the overall fight is going to be largely dictated by Tatsuru Taira. In the end, I think Vergara gets through without being finished, but the limitless potential of Tatsuru Taira is too good for me to deny. I'm taking Tatsuru Taira over CJ Vergara by decision. Now, let's get amongst our next fight. Did somebody say, ladies? Yeah, it was me, because up next, we are moving on to women's strawweight action as two fighters look to continue their winning ways inside the apex. It's going to be the undefeated Piera Rodriguez taking on Sam Hughes. Let's start with Venezuela's Piera Rodriguez, 
who secured her spot inside the UFC this time last year, defeating Valeska Machado via a comprehensive decision. Now, Piera earned herself the contract, and Rodriguez made her official debut inside the UFC, and I must say it was equally as fruitful, besting Kay Hansen by decision to extend Piera's winning run to eight straight. Now, on a personal note, that was a memorable day. I won a fair bit of money that day, went to the pub with some mates, watched the card. Uh, that was the same card with Kamzat Chemaev and Gilbert Burns. Uh, what fucking hell? What was the headliner? Uh, we had Piotr Aljamain Sterling, and gee whiz, it's just escaping me off the top of my head what the main event was, but it doesn't matter. It was a great day. I only had one fight wrong across that whole card that day, so I was winning, 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 and the only one I actually got wrong was the split decision bantamweight title fight, so I'm not here to gloat, but I won a stack of money that day, and look, if you want to be like, oh, fucking thanks for sharing, I put out a preview and predictions podcast just like this one. I gave you all my picks, so don't fucking come at me complaining. I'm trying to win us all some money. Now... Enough about Piero Rodriguez, let's get on to Sam Page Sam Hughes, who seemed all but destined, quite frankly, to be cut after going 0-3 to start her UFC career, albeit against very stern competition. Now for Sam Hughes, she lost a short notice call-up on debut, going down to the always game Tisha Torres. Now that one was a corner stoppage after Sam Hughes suffered an eye injury in the first round. That loss was followed by back-to-back decision losses to Loma Lukbunmi and Luana Pinheiro. By this stage, Sam Hughes was up shit creek without a paddle, and the once highly touted prospect was on the rocks with another loss, almost certain to spell the end of the line for Sam Page inside the UFC. Thankfully for Sam though, there was a major game changer, and that was when Sam Page linked up with Saif Saud Oh, safe side, sorry, fucking hell. Pretty much just said that anyway. I digress. That was until Sam Page linked up with Saeed and the team over at Fortis MMA, who've really harnessed the spectacular wrestling as well as the elite cardio game of Hughes to its maximum potential. Sam now rides a two-fight win streak into Vegas after proving far too strong for both Estella Nunes and most recently, Elise Reed. The win over Reed in particular was a terrific display of what Sam Hughes can produce when she is at her best. And look, Sam Page absolutely decimated Elise en route to a third round technical knockout victory. Hughes has seemingly put all the right pieces together under the team at Fortis MMA, and she now faces what may just be her toughest test to date in the unbeaten Piera Rodriguez. Who makes a statement this weekend? And who falls a little bit further back in the pecking order? Well, let's dig a little deeper and try to find out, shall we? Let's start with Piera La Fiera Rodriguez, 29 years old from Venezuela. Piera trains with Serpente and she is predominantly a striker, holding a UFC record of one win and no losses. It's also to be noted that Piera is a former LFA strawweight champion, She's held gold before, and that is no doubt her end goal here inside the USC. Opposing Piera 
Sam Page, Sam Hughes, 30 years old from Everett, Washington. Sam, as I mentioned, trains at Fortis MMA, and Hughes is a freestyle fighter with the UFC record standing at two wins and three losses. Now, for Sam Page, she averages over one takedown per 15 minutes. And look, I think she is going to be looking to utilize her top game here. In terms of the striking, Hughes does absorb more strikes than she lands over a five-fight sample size. So that is quite concerning, considering the striking acumen of one Piera Rodriguez. Now, for Sam Page, she has 40% takedown accuracy. And in my opinion, if Kay Hansen can get Piera down to the mat, which she did in their fight, then Sam should be able to relatively easy, which is a little bit concerning. Looking at some of the other advantages, height and reach will favor Sam Page in this one, although I don't know how much that's going to factor into this particular bout. There's a heavy grappling advantage for Sam Hughes. I also think she has the cardio advantage, but for Piera Rodriguez, I think she's going to lean on her striking in terms of striking advantages, I do believe Rodriguez is the superior of the two. Experience and level of competition, that goes to Sam Hughes. She's had a lot more time to find her feet inside the UFC. And now she's really starting to find success inside the octagon. The confidence factor is going to be high for both, but Piera is yet to taste defeat. Now for Rodriguez, does that add to her confidence? Or does that add extra pressure and expectation, which in the case of Sam Hughes, that less pressure may, you know, help her to take the shackles off and really fight a fantastic fight. Moving on to the Tapology Worldwide Strawweight Rankings, these two could not be any closer. Piera Rodriguez is ranked 30th worldwide, Sam Hughes Ranked 31st, so this is a real opportunity to break into the top 20-25 of the strawweight worldwide rankings. And look, the winner won't quite be in the top 15 mix yet, but they are certainly going to be one step closer to pushing their claims over the next calendar year. Now, finish factor for this fight, relatively low. Look, both of them do have credentials in the stoppage department. But I expect this one to go the distance, not out of the realms of possibility that either can achieve a stoppage. Uh, they are both pretty decent at it, but I think they're just so closely matched that if I had a gun to my head, I'd say this one goes the distance. I don't have a gun to my head. It's all right. I'll blink twice if I need help. Now, Sam Hughes, professional record, seven wins and four losses. And the key statistics for Sam Page Five of her seven wins have come inside the distance, including three first round finishes. So Sam Hughes has two knockout wins, three submissions, and two decisions. And as far as losses for Sam Hughes, she's been knocked out once, submitted once, and lost twice by decision. Seven and four record for Sam Page. As for Piera Rodriguez, a perfect eight wins, no losses. And the key stat for Piera, five of her eight wins have come by way of knockout. 63% of her wins have been knockouts. So look, maybe the finish factor is higher than I thought. Maybe this one doesn't go the distance. 
Stylistically, I think Sam Hughes has found success in recent times by implementing her wrestling game and by physically imposing herself on her opponents. There is no doubt in my mind that Sam Page is going to try and take Piera into deep waters. Wearing on Rodriguez with the wrestling over the course of the 15 minutes, and for Sam Hughes, she's going to be looking to take her opportun- uh, opportunities. That's fucking rogue. Uh, take her opportunities when they are presented. For Piera Rodriguez, she's defended takedowns before up against Kay Hansen, but in my opinion, Kay Hansen wasn't up to par as far as fighting at the highest level is concerned. It's going to be a significantly tougher ask for Rodriguez to get through this fight, with Piera's striking being the path to victory in my opinion. It's an ultra tough call to pick my winner for this one. I've been split on my verdict all week. Now I'm just going to have to take a shot in the dark. I'm going Piera Rodriguez by decision. She's got up for me before. And look, in a fight that I cannot split, I'm going to go with what I know. And I'm going to back the Venezuelan in to cash me another bet. Fingers crossed. Now, how is Piera going to do that? I think it's going to be largely built around takedown defense and crisp striking throughout the 15 minutes. I'm taking Piera by decision, maybe even split decision. I do think this one's going to be very close. I feel uneasy going against someone who's in such great form as Sam Page is. But let's lock in the third pick for this card. I, a little bit hesitantly, but nonetheless, I am taking Piera Rodriguez by decision. Now let's sink our teeth into the next fight. Alright, short notice bout up next, and much like when I bring a girl home, this one is going to be over pretty quickly. It's going to be a rapid prediction in the featherweight division. This one put put together at short notice, and if you haven't listened to the podcast before, for the short notice fights, I like to just do a rapid pick, just bang it out there. Less of a preview and prediction. So we've got Joe Anderson Britu up against Lucas Alexander who makes his UFC debut on short notice. Now, Lucas will be replacing Melsic Bagdasarian, and Lucas is coming off an outstanding showing under the banner of Anthony Pettis FC. Lucas rides a five-fight win streak into this fight, but he's going up against Joe Anderson Britu, a Dana White Contender Series alum, who, look, he is coming off a powerful knockout over Andre Feely, which is no laughing matter, Joe Anderson Britu, he did lose in his official UFC debut to Bill Elgio, but Britu, I mean, he responded in style. He knocked Andre Feely out cold. For my rapid prediction, I'm going Joe Anderson Britu. I do like Lucas Alexander, actually. I was considering taking Alexander in this fight as a great value underdog, so don't write him off, Lucas Alexander, that is. But for my rapid prediction... I'm going to go Joe Anderson Britu. I was really impressed with what he did last time, and I'm taking Britu by knockout. Now, I do think there's a chance he actually wins by submission, uh, but just look, when I watched that tape back of him knocking out Andre Feely, this dude hits so bloody hard. So, rapid prediction, short notice in the featherweight division. I'm taking Joe Anderson Britu by knockout. 
Can Lucas Alexander pull off the upset? I personally cannot wait to find out. And look, the Preview and Predictions podcast, it's all about asking some questions, giving my thoughts on what I think's going to happen. But of course, do not forget this weekend, UFC Vegas thoughts and comments. That's the live reactions podcast. So today, all about asking some questions and giving my thoughts on what I think's going to happen. And Sunday, Australian time, UFC thoughts and comments. That's all about looking back in hindsight, having some answers to our questions, and just reacting in general to the cards. So this pick, Joanderson Britu by knockout, a rapid prediction, but I will be going more in depth into that fight for the thoughts and comments podcast. Don't forget to check that out. It'll be dropping within an hour of the UFC Vegas card finishing. With that being said though, let's keep rolling through this card and get amongst our next fight. Up next, we have got a middleweight fight that I'm actually really keen to get amongst. It's two fighters that I am a big fan of, and they are both hoping to respond to some momentum-halting losses last time out. It's going to be California native and Nate Diaz understudy Nick Maximov up against Australia's own Jacob Mamba Malkoon. For Nick Maximov, the 24-year-old enters Vegas on the back of his first career defeat, with Nick beginning his career with eight consecutive wins before dropping his most recent bout up against the Ultimate Fighter alumni, Andre Petrosky. Now, Petrosky capitalized on the first opportunity presented, submitting Nick Maximov with an anaconda choke only 70 fucking six, sorry, I nearly forgot uh, what I was about to say, only 76 seconds into their fight. So just over a minute was all it took for Petrosky to submit Maximov. Now, Nick has been matched up with nothing but top prospects so far, with no easy fights to build his name. Not that he minds. Definitely something to it that the Nate Diaz understudy given very difficult fights to start his run. As for Australian Jacob Malkoon, well, Mamba posted back-to-back decision wins up against Abdul Razak Al-Hassan and AJ Dobson to add his name into the mix of top prospects at 185 pounds. Malkoon surged into UFC 275 back in June, full of confidence and looking to make it three straight wins. However, Malkoon was beaten by Brendan Allen. Now, very questionable call from the judges. Many people, myself included, felt that Malkoon had done enough to have his hand raised. Uh, But lucky for Brendan Allen, no one fucking asked me for my scorecard. This is a valuable lesson as well for Malkoon. Never leave it to the judges. These guys are fucking... You can't trust them as far as you can throw them. Like, for real. These judges, they just... They march to the beat of their own drum. They well and truly just do whatever the fuck they want. And for Malkoon, he has learned the lesson. Do not leave it to the judges. Now, one of the major elements of Mumba's recent run has been his grappling prowess. So this shapes as a very intriguing stylistic bout, given the wrestling credentials of one Nick Maximov. Now, a little note here as well. Uh, I listened to an interview Low Kick MMA on YouTube had a chat to Nick Maximov and Nick shared his intent in the interview 
that he plans, plans on letting his hands go in this fight, which if you've watched Maximov's UFC tenure so far, predominantly just grappling, hasn't really let his hands go in any of the fights. So I thought that was a very interesting note. Expect Nick Maximov to really put the foot down and throw out a lot more striking than we are used to seeing from him. It's hard to tell exactly what's going to play out here, but let's dig deeper and try to find out. We'll start with the profile of Jacob Mumba Malkoon, 27 years old, from Sydney, Australia. Jacob represents PMA Super Martial Arts Center, and Malkoon's style is jiu-jitsu. He's a BJJ brown belt, and as I said, he has been displaying his grappling credentials over his last few fights. Malkoon carries a 2-2 record inside the UFC into Vegas this weekend. And look, just checking out some of his statistics, 39% takedown accuracy, not the best. 14 takedowns landed from 54 attempted. It'll be interesting because Nick Maximov, definitely a strong wrestler, so he's not going to be easy to take down. We've also seen Maximov fight up as heavy as the heavyweight division. So he's a big dude. He's going to be hard to put on his fucking ass. So Malkoon's going to have to work hard. As far as striking accuracy, Jacob has 58%, pretty decent numbers, with 140 significant strikes landed from 240 attempted. Checking out some of the other numbers for Malkoon, he lands just over three significant strikes per minute, whilst he absorbs just under three. So, decent numbers, but as I said, you can expect that Nick Maximov is going to let his hands go in this one. So Mamba, he's going to need to just put a little bit more volume out there, really up the ante, because I believe that's what Maximov's going to do. Now, for Malkoon, he averages just under 7 takedowns per 15 minutes, so decent numbers, but as I said, Maximov is going to challenge him in a way that he hasn't really been challenged so far. Speaking of Maximov, let's get into his profile. Nick is 24 years old from Chico, California, and Maximov represents the Nick Diaz Academy. Now, Nick's greatest strength is his wrestling. That was kind of what brought him into the UFC. Very great wrestler, and obviously everyone's keen to see how he can kind of put that all together, given that this is mixed martial arts. But he trains at Nick Diaz Academy, so look, he will be brushing up on the striking. He's already got that wrestling base, and at only 24 years old, well, this guy's the fucking limit for this bloke. Now, looking at the UFC record, Maximov has a UFC record standing at two wins and one loss, with his wins being decisions over Puna Sariano and Cody Brundage, both who have gone on a tear since losing to Maximov, so that does show you just the strength of competition that Maximov has faced. And look, I'm pretty happy I picked... The Puna Soriano fight, I picked the Cody Brundage fight, so I was really high on Nick Maximov, and I actually picked him up against Petrosky as well, uh, but I stood to be corrected on that one. Now, Maximov has 100% takedown defense inside the UFC. That is a major stat given that Malkoon, obviously, a huge base of his game is around the wrestling and the takedowns, so 100% takedown defense. Can Maximov 
keep those perfect numbers going into this one. Maximov, fucking can't speak English, my bad. Averages just under six takedowns per 15 minutes. So pretty similar numbers to Malkoon. And yeah, they're matched very evenly going into this one. Maximov with 53% striking accuracy and 46% takedown accuracy. Now, having a little squiz with my eagle eye at the advantages, and there's a sizable advantage in both height and reach for Maximov, who will be the larger out of the two fighters. As I mentioned, Maximov has fought at heavyweight before, so pretty big dude, cutting down to 185. That definitely gives the power advantage to Maximov, although I think striking, striking goes to Malkoon. He's also spent time with Rob Whittaker, so I think he would be learning plenty on the go. And Malkoon as well, look, some people worldwide may not know who the Penrith Panthers are, but if you're an Australian, you fucking know who the Penrith Panthers are. One of their wrestling coaches did some work with them early in the season, Jacob Malkoon. So, look, I think there's some greatness could rub off, you know? Penrith Panthers at the top of their game, and Malkoon teaching them a thing or two. So that does boost my confidence in the Australian. As far as the grappling, that's the big test in this fight. That is the big question mark stylistically going into this one. So I am interested to see who comes out on top grappling-wise. Experience, they're relatively similar in that area. And level of competition, pretty much similar as well. So this shapes for a great contest. Very closely matched as well in terms of the Tapology Worldwide Middleweight Rankings. Nick Maximov ranked 48th in the Middleweights Worldwide, whilst Malkoon is 44th. And look, if he was given that win over Brendan Allen, he would be in an even better position. So the winner of this can set their sights on a big push going into next year. They're not quite around that top 15 yet, but a win here... And they can set their sights on cracking the rankings over the next year or so. Now, it's not in their control to crack the top 15 yet, as I just mentioned, but it's a very simple equation. You win and you continue to move forward in the division, or you lose and you find yourself with a lot of ground to make up. For Malkoon in particular, if he can collect the win and get away relatively injury-free, then Jacob could find himself on a stacked UFC pay-per-view card in Perth come February next year. If you haven't heard yet, UFC returning for a pay-per-view in Perth, Australia. Fucking stoked. Cannot wait for that. So you better believe over the next month or so, any of the Australians in action, they're going to be looking to pick up a win, come away injury-free, and then call their shot. Put me on that fucking Perth card. That's what they'll be saying. I'm not saying put me on that Perth card. I am not quite ready to uh, make my Octagon debut. Let's just say that. Now, finish factor. It's always high in the middleweight division. You've got big hosses going at it. The finish factor, always high. Now, neither fighter has won by stoppage during their UFC tenure. So I guess as far as 185 pounds goes, it is a lower finish factor than you would usually find at middleweight. But I don't know, something tells me we're going to see some real fireworks in this clash. And I'm interested to see whether they can go the full 15 minutes.
Dipping into the pro records, Jacob Malkoon's first, standing at six wins, two losses. The key start for Mamba Malkoon, four of his six wins by decision. And overall, from Malkoon's six wins, he has two knockouts, four decisions, and he's lost once by knockout in under 20 seconds up against Phil Hawes. That was in his UFC debut. And he's also lost once by a decision, has Malkoon. That would be the questionable Brendan Allen contest that I mentioned. Onto the profile and professional record of Nick Maximov that stands at eight wins and one loss. Maximov has three first round finishes and five of Nick's eight wins have been stoppages. But interestingly enough, all of those stoppages were outside of the UFC. His two UFC wins, both decisions. Overall, Maximov having two knockout wins, three submission wins, and three decision victories. And as far as his one loss, that was the 76-second submission loss up against Andre Petrosky. For both of these guys, the bounce-back factor is going to be very high. They're hoping to finish the year on a positive note and really set themselves up for a great 2023 campaign. Stylistically, the expectation surrounding this fight is that it's going to be a grappling-centric contest. However, how many times do we see two grapplers cancel each other out and then the action takes place largely on the feet? In my opinion, Nick Maximov comes out looking to throw hands, so if Malkoon is not prepared, there's a big chance he gets knocked out in the first round. I think a large amount of this fight is going to take place on the feet, but inevitably, these two will engage in the wrestling. It is their specialty. So, I mean, it would be fucking rude not to, wouldn't it? Maximov, as I've mentioned, he's the larger fighter, so that should give him an advantage on the mat. But Malkoon is not going to die wondering, and I expect Jacob to present the best version of himself in Vegas this weekend. It's been a tricky one to pick, to be honest. I don't want to go against either of these guys. I'm a huge fan of Nick Maximov in particular, but my Aussie spirit, it's alive and well. That means I'm going to be rooting for my Kello Funtry man. My fellow countryman. Fucking please excuse me for that one. Uh, for my fellow countryman or country, Kello Funtry man, whatever the fuck I'm talking about. Uh, I got to back the Aussie and Jacob Malkoon basically. Went the long way around saying that, but let's bang out my prediction before I butcher... Uh, the English language anymore. I'm taking Mamba Malkoon, you better believe it. Uh, and I'm taking Jacob Malkoon by decision. Why? Well, when in doubt, back the Aussie, back the Kello Funtry man. I expect Malkoon to get this done with a mixture of control time and getting the better of the exchanges on the feet. But he needs to be ready. He needs to be prepared because if he drops his guard and expects a bit too much wrestling, Maximov may end up putting it on him. So I, out of a lot of the fights on this card, have a real vested interest in how this one turns out. But in the end, backing the Callow Funtry Man, taking Jacob Balcoon by decision. Now let's sink our teeth in to the next fight. The bantamweight division takes center stage up next as two veterans of the game face off inside the apex. On one side, the formerly ranked linchpin of the bantamweight division 
in Brazil's Rafael Assuncao, and opposing Rafael this weekend, the well-travelled veteran Victor Henry, fresh off his short-notice debut and a win at that as a sizable underdog up against the always-game Hyone Barcelos. For Assuncao, the 40-year-old veteran enters Vegas this weekend on the biggest slide of his career, dropping four consecutive fights up against some of the best fighters the division has to offer. Now, I'll quickly run through Asuncao's four-fight losing streak. Now, the first of those four losses, he was submitted via guillotine choke up against Marlon Marias. That actually leveled the scores with Asuncao holding a previous victory over Marlon, uh, but when they met in their second encounter in a fight night main event, Marlon Marias submits Asuncao. That was what really started this losing slide. Then after that, Asuncao dropped his second straight up against Corey Sandhagen back at UFC 241. And then at UFC 250, it was the third loss in a row, Cody Garbrandt knocking Asuncao out cold. And for Garbrandt, he's on a losing slide of his own. That was really the only win in what's been a pretty poor time as of late for the former bantamweight champion. The fourth straight loss for Asuncao was a knockout at the hands of Ricky Simone. Now, Rafael doesn't lose much stock with that one, given that Ricky Simone really cementing himself as a legitimate contender within the division. Now, Asuncao has not won since his decision victory over Rob Font, which was over four years ago now. In his prime, Asuncao was a legitimate threat to win the belt, racking up wins over the likes of Pedro Munoz, TJ Dillashaw, and the current bantamweight champion, Aljamain Sterling. Very interesting, given that next weekend we are going to see Dillashaw up against Sterling for the title, and Sun Sao holding wins over both of those guys. But unfortunately for Rafael, Father Time is undefeated, and the accumulation of damage appears to have caught up with the always classy Sun Sao. Can the once-ranked veteran arrest this slide, or is this the end of the line for Rafael Asuncao? Let's have a squiz and find out, shall we? Now, the man tasked with defeating Asuncao this weekend is the globe-trotting veteran Victor Henry. Henry arrived in the UFC at the start of this year, displaying a superior cardio game on his way to unanimous decision victory over Hyone Barcelos. Now, Victor had long been considered one of the best 135ers outside of the UFC, and now he has the chance to press his claims to be the best 135er in the world, period. It won't be easy given the stacked nature of the division, but Victor Henry is in with a shot, and a win over Rafael Asuncao would surely pair Henry up with a ranked opponent next time out. Can Victor make it 2 from 2 inside the UFC? Or is he about to learn a valuable lesson up against a stalwart of the division? Let's jump into the profiles, starting with Victor Lamangosta Henry, 35 years old from Los Angeles, California. Victor trains at UWF USA, so he's a student of the great Josh Barnett. So look, he's learning from one of the best. As far as his style, Victor Henry is an all-rounder, 
but he specifically excels on the mat. That is where I believe he is most dangerous. And Henry carries a perfect one win, no loss record inside the UFC. As for Rafael Assuncao, he is 40 years old from Brazil and fighting out of Georgia in the United States. Rafael represents Ascension Mixed Martial Arts and he fights in a southpaw stance, so I do expect this to at times be a little bit of an awkward one in the on the feet exchanges. Speaking of fucking awkward, that sentence that just came out of my bloody mouth. Now, Rafael, he has a few different styles. He's a great Muay Thai fighter, as well as being a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt and a karate practitioner. And Asuncao carries an 11-6 UFC record into this fight, of course, on a four-fight slide. So, at one stage, that was 11-2, but now not such a glistening record, and he's hoping to arrest the biggest slide of his career. Checking out some of the numbers for a Sun Sao, and he has a pretty large sample size as well, so this gives us quite a good indicator as to exactly where everything's at. Now, a Sun Sao has 41% striking accuracy, 39% takedown accuracy, with 13 takedowns landed from 67 attempts. So, look, that's not, not a great number when you're going up against someone like Victor Henry. Uh, some of the other numbers, 68% significant striking defense for a Sun Tzu, so he's really great at evading strikes. And, I mean, that's why he's had such longevity in the business. Although, as of late, he has shown that yeah, his chin is starting to fail him a little bit. 78% takedown defense for a Sun Tzu as well, so defensively, very, very sharp. Checking into the advantages, and look, experience is not a problem for either of these men. A Sun Tzu does have a 16-fight experience advantage as far as competing in the UFC is concerned, but Victor Henry has fought all over the world, most notably in Asia, and look, experience by the bucket load for both of these guys. As far as the durability advantage, that most definitely goes to Victor Henry, and cardio as well. We saw in his last fight on the pay-per-view card that Victor Henry is an absolute machine, has cardio for days, and look, as far as the striking and grappling, I think that's gonna be relatively easy, uh, easy? Fucking hell. We keep rolling, relatively even, and look, I'm interested to see who can gain the ascendancy. Height and reach in this one will favor Victor Henry. And level of competition goes to Rafael Asuncao, given he has faced the best of the best for so many years now. However, Victor Henry has only fought two fighters with losing records over his entire career. So you can't really fault either of these guys when it comes to the high level of their competition. Great matchmaking setting up this bout. I'm really intrigued. Is the Sun Sao done? Does he have anything else left to give? And is Victor Henry the real deal? Or did he kind of luck out? Uh, well, he definitely didn't luck out. If you watch that fight up against Hyoni Barcelos, that was a masterclass from someone on debut. Now, jumping over to the Tapology Worldwide Bantamweight Rankings, a Sun Sao ranked 25th, but of course, only very recently, Rafael was in the division's top 15. He had been for years as well. So it's a great test for Victor Henry. Asuncao now ranked 25th worldwide. 
and he's on a four-fight slide. So I think this speaks to how quality Rafael Asuncao is. He's dropped four fights in a row, and he is still considered within the best 25 bantamweights in the world. And a win here this weekend. Look, he's 40 now, so I don't know how much more he has left to give. But a win, it immediately re-establishes himself as a threat at 135 pounds. For Victor Henry, he's ranked in 19th, he's not on a slide, and he has a fantastic opportunity to really press his claims to crack the rankings. Now those worldwide rankings would suggest the winner of this contest gets a ranked opponent next, especially in the case of Victor Henry. The finish factor in this one, I'm going to say medium. For Rafael Asuncao, he has shown a tendency to be finished in recent times, and there are question marks around his ability to, to take a big shot at age 40. He's been dropped bad in his last couple of fights, so as far as the finish factor, it feels like if someone's going to get finished, it's definitely going to be Asuncao. And for Victor Henry, he's never been finished inside the distance across 27 pro fights, so I think that levels itself out to be medium. If there is someone who's going to be finished, just looking on paper, you would have to suggest that will be Asuncao. But Rafael, he's still an amazing fighter. It's just a question of how much does his body have left to give. Now, checking into the pro records, starting with Victor Henry, whose record stands at 22 wins and 5 losses. The key stat for Victor Henry, out of his 5 losses, all 5 by decision, Victor Henry is yet to be finished. So, extremely durable, has great striking defense, has amazing submission defense, and I'm interested because he's going to be tested as much as ever up against someone the caliber of a Sun Sao. As far as the 22 wins for Victor Henry, he has 6 knockouts, 8 submissions, and 8 decision victories. Checking out Rafael Asuncao's pro record, which stands at 27 wins and 9 losses. And here's a fun little factoid for you. Uh, Rafael Asuncao actually beat Jorge Masvidal back in 2005. So well before their UFC days. I was fucking 9 years old for goodness sake. Now that was Rafael's 5th fight as a professional. And now, well, he's, he's fucking 36 fights into his career. So... Been a while since that one went down. For Asuncao, he has eight first-round finishes on his resume. And the key statistic for Rafael is that 10 of his career wins have come via submission. Now, overall, from his 27 wins, he has four knockouts, 10 submissions, and 13 decision victories. And as far as the nine losses for Rafael, he's been knocked out three times, including a couple of times in recent history. He's been submitted twice, and he's also lost four times by decision. Now, as for the bounce-back factor, I'm going to go bounce-back factor as medium as well. Just a question of how much motivation does a Sun Tzu have to bounce back? This could very well be his last fight. We don't know. So I'm not sure whether his motivation is like one more run at the title, whether it's just to stack up the paydays, or whether maybe this is the very last fight of his career. Now, stylistically, I think there's going to be pressure and high volume throughout from Victor Henry, who, as I mentioned, has cardio for days. 
And there's no doubt in my mind the chin of Rafael Asuncao is going to be tested throughout multiple stages of this fight. And it really does remain to be seen whether Rafael's body is going to be able to hold up over the course of the bout. For Asuncao, his best bet is to utilize his grappling and look for yet another submission finish. But look, looking at the record of Victor Henry, I think it's pretty clear that Lamon Gosta is not going to present too many opportunities for that. Now, in my opinion, I'm a fan of Rafael Asuncao, and he's absolutely wrecked his body over years to entertain us. It's never fun to watch the decline of a once great fighter, but it does seem as though Asuncao's cards inside the octagon have been marked. Is this the final fight of Rafael's career? I don't know. I'm fucking not a magician. I'm not a psychic. I'm going Victor Henry by decision though. Now, this is an interesting one because as I mentioned, a lot of question marks around the durability of the veteran in Asuncao. I'm taking Victor Henry by decision. Why? I'm just, I'm confident Victor Henry wins. I'm just not 100% sure on my method. I was leaning toward a stoppage throughout most of the week and after watching tape, uh, but I'm hoping a sunsail gets through as unscathed as possible. So I guess this pick is just because I'm a fan of a sunsail. I don't want to see him get finished in brutal fashion again, although that is a high possibility. As far as how Victor Henry wins this fight, I think it's pressure, I think it's volume and output for the full 15 minutes. That's my prediction. Boom, bam. Thank you, ma'am. I am taking Victor Henry by decision. Still a few fights to go, though, including our featured prelims. Uh, let's just fucking launch into it, shall we? All right, now, before I actually jump in to our next fight, the featured prelim, uh, in the midst of this fucking podcast being recorded, uh, there's actually been a bit of a switch up. So the fight that I just did, uh, previewed and predicted, Victor Henry, Raphael Asuncao, that's been moved to the main card. And if you haven't heard why that is yet, uh, Brandon Royval and Askar Askarov, the big flyweight fight, that is now being scratched, supposedly Askarov not going to make weight. Uh, he was offered a catchweight fight and turned it down. So very unfortunate for Brandon Royval. Very unfortunate for fans of both fighters who wanted to see them go at it. Uh, but I shall digress. So no Brandon Royval and Askar Askarov on the card anymore. Uh, but we do have a few other fights. So let's now get amongst the featured prelim as high-octane bantamweights enjoy the spotlight this weekend. It's Mana Martinez meeting Brandon Davis in the UFC Vegas featured prelim spotlight. Now, this will be the third appearance for Mana Martinez under the UFC banner. He won in his promotional debut up against Guido Canetti. Uh, that was last August. And then Mana Boy most recently was bested by Ronnie the Heat Lawrence at the beginning of this year. Now, in the most recent fight, Martinez up against Ronnie Lawrence, Mana seemed to have a really hard time dealing with the ferocious pressure as well as the takedown game of Lawrence, so that makes Brandon Davis a particularly intriguing matchup for the Houston native. Now, in that third round of Mana Martinez up against Ronnie Lawrence, he was clearly losing the fight, but 
he did come with an obese dick of uh, knocking Ronnie Lawrence out cold. Really, that scared me because I had uh, Ronnie winning that one by decision, had some money on it, and I was definitely nervous as hell when he got dropped toward the end there. Uh, but Ronnie Lawrence did enough to get through the full 15 minutes. Uh, Mana Martinez, though, he very lethal striker. So, look, he nearly knocked Ronnie Lawrence out. He wasn't able to do so. And now he faces an equally as difficult test in Brandon Davis. The man known as Killer B in the midst of his second stint with the UFC after Brandon was let go and made to force his way back into the promotion after four victories on the regional scene. During that time, Brandon would capture the Gulf Coast MMA Bantamweight Championship and then that strong run of form was enough to earn Davis a recall inside the octagon. Now, Killaby returned to the big time and that was about exactly one year ago, almost one year ago to the day. Brandon's second stint beginning on October the 16th last year where he took on the powerful and fear-inducing Mongolian prospect Danar Bhatgaral. Unfortunately for Davis, he was no match for Bhatgaral, being finished just two minutes into the fight. I was happy with that personally because it was another correct prediction for me. I had Bhatgaral to win that one by knockout, uh, so I was cheering him on. But look, it's hard to say exactly what goes down in this contest between Mana Martinez and Brandon Davis, though history would suggest this is going to be fireworks from the word go. Let's now get into the profiles, starting with Brandon Killaby Davis. Now, he is 32 years old, American, and Brandon trains at Allen Belcher MMA Club. Killaby is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu purple belt, as well as being a Muay Thai brown belt, and Brandon carries a 2-6 and six UFC record, so not the greatest of records by any stretch of the imagination. But in that same sense, I do feel as though Brandon Davis is much more skilled than his UFC record would suggest. It is lopsided 2-6, and six, but I, I just think he's a much, much better fighter uh, than we are led to believe if you just look at his record on paper. Now, for Leo Monoboy Martinez, he is 26 years old from Houston, Texas, and Mana trains at Glory MMA and Fitness under James Krause, who is very fast becoming one of the great coaches in mixed martial arts. Now, Mana is a knockout specialist. That is absolutely how he loves to win his fights, and Martinez carries a UFC record at 1-1. One and one. one win, one loss heading into this fight. Now, having a quick look at the advantages, there's going to be a 5cm reach advantage for Brandon Davis, who is the larger fighter, so I think there is a chance that Brandon Davis can use this reach advantage, well, to his advantage, to help him win this fight. Striking, in my opinion, favours Martinez, although Brandon Davis is no slouch on the feet. I think that the grappling favours Davis, and as far as experience and level of competition goes, I also think that advantage lays with Brandon Davis. So very interesting matchmaking here. They are closely matched. Now, looking at the Tapology Worldwide Bantamweight rankings, there is a little bit of a discrepancy in terms of where both men stand. 
with Mana Martinez ranked 75th worldwide, whilst Brandon Davis is ranked 104th. So he is a little bit further back in the worldwide rankings. Although, as I mentioned earlier, do not let Brandon Davis's poor UFC record fool you. This guy is a tremendous fighter. Now, as far as the finish factor in this one, I've jotted that down as a medium. We know that Mana Martinez is going to be looking for the knockout. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be able to get it. Uh, but as far as intent from Mana Martinez, we know that he's going to be chasing the knockout. Whilst for Brandon Davis, he's going to be looking to outgrapple and just really frustrate Martinez. So medium on the finish factor. Jumping into the professional records. Brandon Davis enters Vegas. Oh, that's fucking a bit of a rhyme right there. Unintentional. Gee whiz. Uh, Brandon Davis enters with a pro record standing at 14 wins and 9 losses. And the key stat here for Brandon Davis is that 8 of his 14 wins have come by way of stoppage. Checking out his 9 losses. 6 of Brandon's 9 losses have come by way of decision. So he is very durable. The only guy who's ever managed to knock him out was Dinar Butgaral last time out. Uh, and Davis has been submitted twice as well. Now, it's not just decisions that largely make up Davis's losing record. His majority of wins have also come by way of decision. Six decision wins, whilst he also has four knockouts and four submissions apiece. Now, on to Mana Martinez. His record standing at 9 wins and 3 losses. And here's the big stat here, stylistically, that intrigues me a lot. Now, for Mana Martinez, 8 of his 9 career wins have come by way of knockout. Very interesting when you consider Brandon Davis has only lost once by way of knockout. There's your stylistic match right there. So, Mana Martinez, 8 of 9 career wins by knockout. 5 of those coming in the first round. Three of those coming in under a minute. So Mana Martinez, the guy fucking loves to bang. Eight of nine wins by knockout. That makes up 89% of his record. He's won once by decision. And as far as his losses, Mana is yet to be knocked out. He's been submitted once and lost twice by decision. Now, when I think about the bounce back factor for this fight, I mean, it's really high in this case. Neither man wants to con uh, collect their second consecutive loss. Definitely what, not what you want in the UFC. Uh, because, look, the matchmakers and Dana White, it doesn't take too much poor form for them to just get rid of you altogether. Now, stylistically, I believe Brandon Davis is going to look to use his grappling. He's going to hope to control this contest on the way to a win. And that is an interesting point, because when you go back to Mana Martinez... And his last fight against Ronnie Lawrence, that was the area where he really did lose the fight. Mana was totally outgrappled by Ronnie. And look, as I said a bit earlier, he did come very close to knocking Ronnie Lawrence out toward the end there. So I am wondering, is Mana Martinez going to come in with more urgency, looking for that big shot? And instead of landing it in round three, maybe look to land it in the first round? Or is Martinez going to take a more controlled and methodical approach in this fight? He does have James Krause in his corner, so the fight IQ is going to be there. Uh, and I do believe 
James Krause is going to play a really big part in potentially getting Mana Martinez over the line. In my opinion though, out of all the fights on this card, this is definitely one of the toughest to call. I believe Brandon Davis's record inside the octagon does not reflect how truly skilled he is as a fighter. Now Davis, he does blow up quite a bit in terms of his size, usually fights around 155, 160, so well above the bantamweight limit. And look, he should have a fair size and weight advantage going into this fight. However, cutting all that weight just to load it back on before the fight cannot be healthy, and I think it'll leave Davis more susceptible to being dropped. My prediction for this bantamweight featured prelim, I'm going to take Mana Martinez by knockout. Now, I did think about going decision, uh, but Mana, Mana boy, what he loves to do is chase that knockout. And as I said, I think the weight cut for Brandon Davis uh, may be to his detriment. So I'm going to go with Mana Martinez by knockout. I'm not 100% confident with this pick. I think there's equal chance, to be honest, that Davis gets Mana down and that Mana Boy struggles to get up and Davis just wins it either with a stoppage or just totally fucking wrestle fucks him for, jeez, excuse my language, double F-bomb. Um, yeah, but just fucks him up with the wrestling uh, for the whole three rounds. But over the course of 15 minutes, I'm going to back Mana Martinez in. I think he can land a massive strike somewhere in there. And the track record of Mana Boy, well, that proves he has serious power. He knows how to shut an opponent's lights out. And look, Brandon Davis is on one good leg. He's had that strapping on the knee for his last few fights. And look, most fighters are carrying an injury of some description, but I do think that's going to limit the power of Brandon Davis. That's also going to give Mana Martinez another target that he can really look to exploit. And look, I think as soon as Brandon Davis starts kind of focusing his attention on the legs and things like that, I think that's when Mana Martinez comes up top. It's a potential fight of the night for me. I'm expecting finishing intent from both, whether it be Davis or Mana. I think this one ends inside the distance. Now, in my opinion, the best moment for Martinez in his last fight was when he went for the knockout right at the end. I think this time around, Mana will know that time is of the essence. I think Mana Boy chins Brandon Davis and earns the finish. Mana Martinez by knockout. Now, let's get amongst the main card. Righty ho, alrighty, let's now jump into the main card, as I said, and we got some big boppers up next. Light heavyweight action kicking off this weekend's main card. It is the atomic one, Alonzo Menefield meeting UFC veteran Misha Serkinov, with the latter moving back up to 205 after an unsuccessful stint down at middleweight. Now, Misha's reasoning for moving down to middleweight in the first place was simple. Serkinov felt that he was being outmuscled at light heavyweight and as though he would be more imposing up against middleweight fighters. The formerly wanked Wow, <laughs> you know, we'll leave that in there, actually. The formerly ranked, oh, goodness gracious. Uh, the formerly ranked Serkinov was knocked out 
in 61 seconds up against Ryan Spann. Now, that was the last time we saw him, Misha that is, fight at 2.05. Now, Serkinov hoped to bear the fruits of an extra weight cut, but instead went 0-2 in the middleweight division. Now, the first fight that he had at 185 was October last year, that being a split decision loss up against Christoph Jotko. Then, in February this year, Misha gave it another crack at 185, but was submitted in the second round via armbar submission up against Wellington Terman. Now Misha finds himself going back to what he knows as he returns to the light heavyweight division. Opposing Sokhanov this weekend is the 34-year-old powerhouse Alonzo Menefield. Alonzo's UFC run has been a mixed bag so far, with some epic moments, including a first-round knockout up against Paul Craig, as well as some not-so-epic moments, uh, mainly, I guess, the consecutive losses that he had up against Ovince St. Preux and Devin Clark in 2020. However, the American has been in career-best form of late, with victories in three of his past four outings. Menefield is coming off a first-round TKO win over Askar Mosrov, who had a fake record, that was fucking strange. He was like actually a can, uh, he was immediately cut following that loss. So this dude seemed to, I, mean, I guess the saying, fake it till you make it. He literally did fake it and then he made it into the UFC and then he got knocked the fuck out by Alonzo Menafield. Now that win was a magnificent reminder of Alonzo's physical presence, but it is hard to take too much stock from that win given that his comp opponent was a complete can. You can only beat the opponent in front of you though, so in that respect, Menafield passed with flying colours. Now, Alonso finds himself floating just outside the division's top 15, and a win this weekend is sure to propel the man known as Atomic into calculations for the rankings. The assignment for Alonso to prove that he is worthy he has got to dispatch a veteran of the division to earn the right to move forward and be given the privilege of facing a ranked opponent next time out. Is Alonso going to pass the test or will Misha Serkinov return to the light heavyweight division in style? Well, as always, let's go a bit deeper and see if we can find out. Squeezing into the profiles, Alonso Menafield, nicknamed Atomic, he is 34 years old, fighting out of Dallas, Texas, and Alonzo will be representing Sykeson's Muay Thai. Menafield is a powerhouse in every sense of the word. This dude is jacked as hell. Looks like the Incredible Hulk or some shit. Like, this dude is a physical specimen. Alonzo carries a UFC record standing at 5 wins and 3 losses. And some of the notes from Menafield's UFC profile, he has 9 first round finishes in his career, 83% takedown defense. Now, that is a point that is crucial given that Misha Serkinov loves to utilize the grappling, looks for the takedowns whenever he can, and look, Menafield's got really decent takedown defense for a big fella. 83% takedown defense, as well as 56% striking accuracy. Now let's look into the opponent's profile, Misha Serkinov, 35 years old, fighting out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and Misha at one of the world's leading gyms, Extreme Couture. 
Sokonov is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and his UFC record stands at 6 wins and 6 losses. Some of the stats from his profile, 11 first round finishes for Misha, he has 52% striking accuracy and 44% takedown accuracy. So that kind of goes back to what I was saying, he likes to go for the takedowns, uh, but the accuracy not so great, so I think Alonzo Menefield could cause him some issues in that regard. Now as far as advantages, Serkinov does have the height and reach, but the power most definitely belongs to Alonzo Menfield. He is capable of shutting even the strongest bloke's lights out, and at times Serkinov has shown the tendency to get dropped by these big fellas. Hence why he did try, albeit an unsuccessful stint, to move down to the middleweight division. However, Serkinov does have some advantages, I think the experience as well as level of competition definitely lays with Misha and I do believe he is the better grappler, although as I mentioned, very great takedown defense from Alonzo Menefield and the definite better striker is Alonzo. So stylistically, the shapes is a very interesting matchup. Looking into the topology worldwide rankings, Misha Serkinov of course, formerly a top 15 light heavyweight. Uh, but because his last couple of fights were at middleweight, he's listed in the middleweight rankings, 75th worldwide at middleweight. Although you would have to consider he was a little bit better in terms of rankings when it comes to light heavyweights. As for Alonzo Menefield, he is ranked 29th worldwide in the light heavyweight division, and he's really trying to build a case to enter the division's top 15. As far as recent form, Serkinov not in a great patch of form at all, Misha losing in 4 of his last 5 fights, as well as being on a 3 fight losing skid coming into this weekend. However, as far as his light heavyweight fights are concerned, it's been nothing but the absolute top of the crop, top level competition all the way through for Misha Serkinov, and look, now it doesn't get any easier in Alonzo Menefield, his opponent, who boasts wins in three of his past four, and the only loss during that period was a very close decision loss to William Knight. Now in this one, the finish factor is high. I have no doubt about that. I'm expecting a finish here. Uh, when you look into it, 12 of Alonzo's 15 professional fights have ended inside the distance, so the numbers don't lie there and 20 of 23 pro fights for Misha Serkinov ending inside the distance. So there's definitely a pattern there. Neither of these guys are point fighters, and I think throughout both guys are going to be looking to wrap it up early. Jumping into the professional records, Alonzo Menefield, his stands at 12 wins and 3 losses, and the key statistic for Alonzo is that 9 of his 12 wins have come by way of knockout. So look, that's a bit of a kryptonite for Serkinov as well. I think that is why they've been paired together stylistically. Alonzo with nine first round finishes as a pro, and he's only been finished once in his career. OSP, Ovin St. Preux, the only fighter to finish Menefield. From his three losses, two of those three were decisions, with the one being that uh, one exception rather being the OSP knockout. 9 of 12 wins for Alonzo by knockout. He's also won twice by submission. 
and once by decision. Now for Misha Serkinov and his pro record, standing at 15 wins and 8 losses coming into this one. Key stats, there's a couple of them for Misha. 13 stoppages from 15 victories. Again, going back to what I was saying, that I fully expect this one to finish inside the distance. Now, 11 first round finishes for Misha. But when you look at his losses, and this look, again, going back to Alonzo Menefield, nine knockout wins. Uh, for Misha, four losses by knockout. So that's actually 50% of Misha's uh, losses have been by knockout. All of those coming in the first round. So there is a bit of a red flag there. Alonzo Menefield definitely going to test out the chin of Serkinov. And two of those first round knockouts clocked in under the 40 second mark. So he, look, he has been finished pretty quickly before. And Alonzo Menefield, he, he can finish a fight very quickly himself. I remember on Dana White's Contender Series, eight seconds was all it took for Alonzo Menefield to get a knockout in his appearance there. Uh, overall professional record for Misha from his eight losses, four knockouts, three submission losses, and one decision. And for the 15 wins in Misha's career, five knockouts, eight submission wins, and two decisions. Misha showing the tendency to like to win by submission. Uh, but when you do look at Alonzo Menafield's profile, from his 15 fights, he is yet to be submitted. Now, stylistically, it's a powerful striker in Menafield, looking to overwhelm his opponent with strength and really test the chin of Misha Serkinov. Whilst for Misha, the path to victory is his grappling, the submission game, and really trying to tire out and wear on Alonzo throughout the contest. Now, in my opinion, respectfully, I'm not chomping at the bit to witness this fight, but it should be really interesting to see who does come out on top and exactly how they do so. As far as my prediction, though, I'm going to take Alonzo Menafield. As I said, this dude is a physical specimen. I'm taking Alonzo Menafield by knockout. Why? I just think he's got too much power for Misha to handle. How? I think first round knockout. All the other knockouts in Misha's career, as far as losses, have come in the first round. So, uh, look, I think Alonzo Menafield gets it done within the first five minutes. That's my pick, Alonzo Menafield over Misha Serkinov by first round knockout. Yeah. Now, you probably catch my drift by now. Let's fucking get amongst the next fight, shall we? Sound the motherfucking banger alarm because we have an explosive contest in the middleweight division to look forward to this weekend. We've got two graduates of Dana White Contender Series seasons past as stoppage specialist Jordan Wright and Dushko Todorovic do battle inside the apex. The UFC matchmakers knew exactly what they were doing, putting this fight on the main card. Now, neither Wright nor Dushko household names, but their fight styles are sure to make for a tantalizing fight for as long as it lasts. Jordan Wright, particularly, does not fuck around, with 14 of his 16 pro fights ending inside the first round. That's 14 of his 16 pro fights 
ending inside five minutes. Jordan Wright has never seen a third round in his mixed martial arts career, with his two ventures into the second round ending within two minutes. The fast-starting approach worked a treat for Jordan throughout his first 12 appearances, but Jordan has since lost three of his last four, entering Vegas on a two-fight slide. It's been a similar story when it comes to Serbian Dusko Todorovic, who also enters Vegas having lost three of his past four, and he's also had a perfect 10 and 0. That was poor English. I meant to say he also started his career uh, a perfect 10 and 0. So both guys, they came out of the blocks firing a lot of confidence, but since reaching the UFC, uh, they haven't been as consistent. Now, I said that both men have lost three of their past four outings. I'll just go through both uh, guys and the actual fights they've been in in that time. Now, for Jordan Wright, he the first in that three of his last four losses, he faced Joaquin Buckley, and he was knocked out in the second round. He, he was pretty much knocked out in the first round. Like, that was lucky to go into the second round. And looked like you could tell Jordan Wright going into that second round, like he was already basically done. And then Joaquin Buckley finished the job. So he had a loss. But then he picked up a pretty big win, did Jordan Wright. He knocked out Jamie Pickett in the first round, came out, totally overwhelmed the Night Wolf, and yeah, just finished him like that. So that was UFC 262. That was a really crucial win for Jordan Wright. And since then, he's dropped his last two. At UFC 269, I remember this well because I did pick against him and I did win a bit of cash here. Uh, Bruno Silva, who blindado is no joke. Although he has dropped, funnily enough, his last two fights. But Bruno Silva is an absolute stud. And he didn't just knock Jordan Wright out. He absolutely wrecked him. After that, Jordan Wright came out and did what Jordan Wright does. He just comes straight out of the blocks, just trying to finish you from the moment the fight starts. Uh, but it wasn't to be up against Marc-Andre Barriolt, who managed to submit Jordan in the first round. Now, looking at Dusko Totorovic and his last four outings, the first of those four was a TKO loss up against Puna Soriano. That was at the start of... Last year, I think. Started last year. That was when uh, Holloway and Kelvin Cater fought each other. So that was first card of last year. Puna Soriano knocking out Dushko. Then after that, Dushko lost by decision to Gregory Robocop Rodriguez, an absolute stud and a genuine contender in the division. So he doesn't lose a ton of stock with that loss, Dushko. Then his one win in his past four up against the since-cut Maki Patolo, or Patolo. Uh, Dushko getting the TKO in that one, really gathering some momentum, and then in his last fight, knocked out brutally the elbow to the face, up against Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty and Joe Kawani, managing to knock Dushko out in the first round. So, look, Dushko, he's been given some bloody stern tests, hasn't he? Chitty and Joe Kawani, and Gregory Rodriguez would be right up there. Even Puno Soriano, in terms of guys in that middleweight division that you don't want to be matched up against. Now, 
As far as this fight, Jordan Wright and Dusko Todorovic, this one seems all but destined to be over just as quickly as it begins. But which of these middleweights are going to have their hand raised in a fight that is crucial in terms of their trajectory going forward? Let's squeeze into the bloody old, big old, bloody profiles, shall we? Uh, Dusko Thunder Todorovic, 28 years old from Belgrade, Serbia. Dushko will be representing Sekuta MMA, and the man known as Thunder Todorovic is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt and also a Taekwondo black belt. Couple of black belts there, I am impressed. No joke, no joke. Now Dushko enters this one with a UFC record standing at two wins and three losses, and some of the things on his profile, seven first round finishes for Todorovic, He's also a former Serbian battle championship middleweight champion. Congrats, my brother. Uh, 55% striking accuracy and 14% takedown accuracy, which isn't great. Only two landed from 28 attempts. And look, he is dishing out 5.36 significant strikes per minute, and he's absorbing 4.77. So he's giving out a little bit more than he's taking. And when you consider the guys he's been up against, like, he has been up against absolute killers. Uh, But Jordan Wright, we know his style. He's going to come out straight from the word go and really try put the heat on. Speaking of, Jordan the Beverly Hills Ninja Wright is 31 years old, fighting out of Los Angeles, California. Jordan chains at Dynamics MMA and is a karate brown belt, holding a UFC record of two wins and three losses, exactly identical to his opponent. Jordan Wright has 11 first round finishes to his name. He has 66% striking accuracy. Uh, as I mentioned, he comes out of the gates, really tries to put it on his opponents, but he does absorb more significant strikes than he lands. 7.37 strikes landed per minute, while 7.61 strikes absorbed. So he does come out He does put the heat on, but it doesn't necessarily work in his favor. Always dangerous when you absorb more strikes than you dish out. Now, as far as advantages, there's going to be a slight height advantage for Jordan Wright, and he's also going to have 7 centimeters in reach. The power goes to Jordan Wright as well. I think if anyone has that fight-finishing power in their hands, it is Jordan, but... There are a lot of areas where I think Dushko has advantages as well. Todorovic has the superior cardio. He's actually seen a first, uh, a third round, rather. I think Dushko's the better striker, and I think Dushko is the better grappler as well. So Jordan Wright, he's powerful, uh, but I don't know necessarily if he is as skillful as Todorovic. Now, as far as the worldwide middleweight rankings, you could not get these blokes any closer. Dushko ranked 57th worldwide and Jordan Wright ranked 58th. So if you want to talk about a swings and roundabouts moment, the winner of this moves into the worldwide top 50, whilst the loser, to be quite frank, kind of drifts into relative obscurity. So very big high stakes fight for the both of these men. Finish factor is ultra high. Like, Jordan Wright hasn't even seen a third round in his life. Is this the fight where he does reach round three for the first time in his career? 
Maybe, but I don't know. I'm thinking the finish factor is ultra high in this one. Checking into the professional records, Jordan Wrights stands at 12 wins, 3 losses, and 1 no contest. That no contest being originally a knockout loss up against Anthony Fluffy Hernandez that was overturned for marijuana. My goodness. How? I don't know. I just don't know how you overturn that. I feel like marijuana is not going to have any say. If anything, I feel like having marijuana in your system would actually make you fight worse. But I digress. 12-3 and 1-no contest. Key statistic for Jordan Wright. All 12 of his wins have come by way of stoppage. 11 of those first round finishes. He's got 7 knockouts, 5 submission wins. So he's got a bit of variety in terms of his offense. And as far as the losses for Jordan Wright, he's been knocked out twice and submitted once. So no decisions on his record. He hasn't even been to round three as we now have a look at Dushko Todorovic. Now Dushko's pro record stands at 11 wins and three losses. And the key stat for Dushko is that 10 finishes from 11 wins. So from his 11 wins, 10 of those have been stoppages, 7 of those coming in the first round, 7 knockouts, 3 submissions, and the 1 decision on his record. And as far as the losses for Dushko, he's been knocked out twice and has lost by decision once. Bounce back factor, I think we all know what this one's going to be. The bounce back is high for both. It's sink or swim areas for both of them. And now shapes as the crucial time to secure a win and kick on toward greater heights. Stylistically, the battle, it's going to be kill or be killed. Full throttle from the word go. We know that Jordan Wright's going to come out chasing the finish. And look, one of these men are going to inevitably wilt. History suggests this one gets settled in the first round. In my opinion, will this fight go the distance? Hell no. I'm taking Dushko Todorovic by knockout. Although I am actually, I did weigh up quite a lot. Jordan Wright, the underdog in this one. Um, I'm a fan. I actually like him. I don't have a lot of confidence. Not enough confidence to pick Jordan to win this fight. But I think he's really dangerous. Anyone that comes out just immediately firing on all cylinders, you do have to be careful of. He's got a great submission game as well. So I think, do consider your options here. I think Jordan Wright could be a great value underdog. But I'm going to stick with the safer bet. I'm going to go with Dushko Todorovic by knockout. Now, why Dushko and why by knockout? Well, someone's getting knocked out. And I'm going to back Dushko to be the one that gets it done. How does he get it done? Well, look, I think Jordan Wright is going to rock Dushko. I think he comes out looking to secure the finish really hurts Dushko, and then uses a bit too much energy trying to get him out of there. And somewhere in amongst the chaos, I think Dushko manages to come back, bag the finish as he fights for his life, trying to keep right off him. So I think Jordan Wright is going to be able to rock Dushko, but I think in all that chaos, Todorovic, he has enough class to, to put his opponent away. So Dushko, Todorovic by knockout. Now we've only got a couple of fights left. Uh, only a couple now, definitely. Of course, now the flyweight fight off the card. Askar Askarov, Brandon Royvel, no more. 
But we do have a couple more, so let's move on to the next, shall we? On to the co-main event now, featuring Killer Cub Swanson, as he officially makes the move down to Bantamweight, taking on the surging prospect in Jonathan Martinez. Now, most of the talk surrounding this co-main has been Cub Swanson's decision to move down a weight class. The longtime featherweight's choice came as somewhat of a surprise, given that Cub was ranked previously inside the top 15, and that was not that long ago, as well as having collected three wins in his last four. Now, just checking the last four fights for Cub Swanson, he had a fight of the night unanimous decision win over Cron Gracie, who is a very, very credentialed grappler. Then after that, a knockout of Daniel Pineda, and look, Pineda at the time had really built up some hype for himself. Cub Swanson shut that all down and, yeah, knocked him out cold. Then after that, in a co-main event, he was finished in the first round, was Cub, by Giga Chikadze. That was the really nasty liver kick. So yeah, he just got hit in the liver, kicked really hard actually in the liver, and the body shut down. So not too much Cub could have done about that. And let's keep in mind, Giga one of the absolute studs of the featherweight division. And most recently, we saw Cub Swanson back at his damaging best, beating Darren Elkins with a first-round TKO, just came out and absolutely romped him, finished it off with a spinning wheel kick and some punches. Really decent form in the featherweight division as of late after dropping a few fights consecutively. But now... The curious decision from Swanson, who believes he isn't punishing himself enough, I think he said, or punishing might not have been the word, but like suffering, believes he's not been suffering enough. Um, yeah, okay, I, I would be interested to hear the logic. I, that's not something I personally would do, but again, that's, I guess, why I'm not in the UFC. I wouldn't probably be like, hey, I'm going to take this route because I will suffer more. But that's what Cub Swanson's going to do. It is interesting as well, given the stacked nature of 135, but Cub obviously feels as though he can make an immediate impact in the bantamweight division. Is the extra weight cut going to make Cub even more dangerous? Or will the cut have a negative impact? That is the biggest talking point, in my opinion, heading into this one. Opposing Swanson is the rising star, Jonathan the Dragon Martinez. The test is very clear for Jonathan. Martinez needs to prove that he's capable of beating a grizzled veteran to earn his stripes and be considered deserving of moving forward within the division. Martinez has been rising through the ranks for a while now, but he's yet to really claim a scalp worthy of thrusting his name into the conversation when it comes to the division's elite. Cub Swanson shapes as that perfect scalp for Jonathan Martinez to pick up and really move forward in the division, and Martinez enters Vegas on the back of a three-fight win streak, in form, and now in the spotlight. Now, he did get knocked out by Davy Grant, that was his last loss, 
Um, and yeah, like, I don't know, that was tough because David Grant, he can throw hands. So he, he knocks out some of the best guys. And since then, three straight wins for Martinez. He had three unanimous decisions. So all going the distance. Zviad Lavashvili was the first guy on the streak. Then Alejandro Perez. And then most notably, a very dangerous fighter in his own right in Vince Morales. Now, Jonathan has been somewhat gun-shy. I don't know if gun-shy is quite the right way to put it, but there's not really been an intent to chase the finish over his three-fight winning run. He's opted not to go for the stoppage, and Jonathan seems simply content collecting the winner's check, which I don't mind that. It's mixed martial arts. I don't really mind if fighters do go to decision. Uh, I think there is a lot of criticism. I mean, you look at Israel Adesanya and everything that's been happening uh, with his most recent fights, but it's this is their bodies. Like It's not like you get punched in the head and then you wake up and it's like, oh, nothing happened. Like You are quite literally getting punched in the head. Uh, there are brain injuries, all sorts of things like that. So I'm not being critical. Uh, but he's definitely not had finishing intent as of late. However, Cub Swanson, I mean, the guy's nickname is Killer Cub. Swanson's not going to allow Jonathan that same methodical pace. Cub's already stated in interviews his intentions are to win by first round knockout, and the veteran is sure to put the pace on Martinez early, shaping for a sink or swim scenario. Who gets it done in our bantamweight co-main event? Is it going to be the veteran moving down the division, Jose Aldo style? Or is it the prospect who looks like he really could have a run of significance in Jonathan the Dragon Martinez? Who's it going to be? Let's dig a little deeper and find out, shall we? Now, jumping through the profiles, we'll start with Jonathan the Dragon Martinez, 28 years old, American, and he trains at Factory X, so a great gym behind Jonathan Martinez, and I also believe he's been doing some additional work alongside James Krause. Uh, I may stand to be corrected on that, but I do believe that's the case. Martinez representing a world-class gym in Factory X. And Jonathan is a striker with a UFC record standing at seven wins and three losses. As for his opponent, we know this man very well. He has entertained us time and time again. That man is Killer Cub Swanson. 38 years old from Palm Springs, California. Cub trains at UFC gym Costa Mesa and he is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, who is very capable on the feet as well. You only have to look back at his last two wins. Brutal knockout victories. So, Cub can throw him, and he can do just as much damage on the mat as well. Swanson with a UFC record standing at 13 wins and 8 losses. As far as the advantages in this co-main event, the experience, the level of competition... That is clear as day. It's Cub Swanson. That's kind of why this match has been made. They're at different points in their careers, and it's somewhat of a rite of passage 
for Martinez within his division. Now, they are identical in both height and reach. As far as power, I give that to Cub Swanson. But how much of power of his power and his durability is Cub going to lose with the move down? If any, he, he may be totally fine. I know he started the weight cut about five months ago. I think he said that he's been doing this for a while. He's really tried to do it properly. But you do lose power. You do lose a bit of durability. Uh, when you cut weight. So that is my biggest question, realistically, going into this one. He does have the power advantage, but how much is he going to lose? Now, grappling, that is also going to Cub Swanson, no doubt. But I believe Martinez is the better striker in terms of his technical prowess. Now, he may not have that power, but he's got the accuracy. He's also got really great kicks as well. So he's great at mixing up. And just, yeah, changing the levels in terms of where he's striking. So I do think that is an area where Martinez does have the advantage. Now, looking at the Tapology Worldwide Rankings, Martinez is ranked 44th in the Bantamweight Worldwide Rankings. So he's, he's making his push. If he had collected a couple more finishes along the way, he'd probably be further ahead. But nonetheless, Jonathan Martinez... Slow and steady can win the race. For Cub Swanson, he is not in the bantamweight worldwide rankings. Of course, this marking his official move down to 135. But Cub Swanson ranked 17th amongst worldwide featherweights. So he's in the absolute top of the crop worldwide for featherweights. But again, there's just that question. Is he going to be better off down at bantamweight? He said he wanted to suffer more. That, I don't know, I'm like, okay, does suffering more make your performance better? Or is that going to make your performance worse? We'll have to find out, won't we? In the words of LMFAO and Redfoo, every day I'm suffering. Now, Cub Swanson, he is no doubt going to force the fight out of Martinez. He's not going to be happy fighting some bullshit point fighting kind of scenario. He's coming out. He has even said so himself. He's coming out looking for that first round finish. Now, how is Cub's chin going to hold up? We still don't exactly know. And I keep going back to it because it is the biggest talking point. But finish factor in this one, I'm going to say it's medium. We know that Cub's going for the finish. But for Martinez, look, over a decent sample size that has been his UFC career, the stoppage intent isn't super high from Martinez. So I think they kind of balance each other out to make the finish factor in this one medium. Although interestingly, both guys very durable. And if there's one weakness across the board in terms of someone actually getting finished, well, Cub Swanson, submissions seem to be his kryptonite. So for Cub Swanson, he has been submitted a number of times. I'll get to that in just a second. Um, but look, Jonathan Martinez, not really the guy to lean on that submission crutch and really be able to take advantage of that. Now, Jonathan the Dragon Martinez enters this fight with a record that stands at 16 wins and 4 losses. Now, he has 7 knockout wins, 7 decision wins, and only 2 submission victories. So, like I said, if there is a kryptonite for Killer Cub Swanson, it is being submitted. 
But yeah, for Martinez, like as of recently, he's exclusively winning by decision. And in terms of finishes, he loves to utilize his striking a lot more. Now, as far as Jonathan's four losses, he's been disqualified once, which was pre-UFC. I believe that was actually against Matt Schnell, who's also in the UFC now. He's been knocked out once and has lost by decision twice. So the only person to have stopped Martinez across 20 pro fights is Davy Grant. As for Cub Swanson, 40 fights in his career. This will be his 41st. 28 wins, 12 losses. Now, from the 28 wins, Cub has 13 knockouts, 4 submissions, and 11 decision victories. And like I mentioned, for Cub Swanson, his clear weakness seems to be getting submitted, albeit against the very, very best. We're talking like Brian T. City, Ortega kind of areas here. Seven of Cub's 12 losses coming by way of submission. He's been knocked out twice, uh, with one of those coming quite recently up against Giga Chikadze, and he has lost by decision three times. Now, stylistically, I keep saying it, Cub Swanson, he's going to come out with that knockout intent from the very first minute of the fight, whilst Martinez is more of a point fighter. There's the clear grappling advantage for Cub Swanson, so Martinez needs to be careful because if he's trying to fight for points, Cub Swanson has a lot of different tools that he can use, especially the grappling, to really win the judges over on the scorecards. Now, in my opinion, look, I've been riding the Jonathan Martinez train for a little while now. He continues to win me money, so if it ain't broken, don't fix it. I'm taking Jonathan Martinez by decision. This one, though, it's not super clear-cut. Cub Swanson is very, very dangerous in many different areas of the fight, so I am wary but I've been wary a couple of times picking Jonathan Martinez, and he's come through for me. So like I said, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. I'm taking Jonathan the Dragon Martinez by decision. I'm also going to be jumping on a double chance bet for Jonathan to win by either knockout or decision. Because I am curious, like I keep mentioning, uh, about where the Cubs chin is going to hold up with the extra weight cut. Swanson is very durable though, hence why my overall pick is for Martinez by decision. And I think it's pretty clear if you've been listening to this, the biggest question, my biggest question going into this one is around how Cub responds to that weight cut. I think Martinez is going to manage to stay at range. I think he's going to uh, try not to get clipped, obviously, by Cub Swanson. And in the end, I think maybe Martinez drops around somewhere in there, maybe even the first one. But I think overall, Martinez is going to have the better of the moments. Jonathan Martinez over Cub Swanson by decision. And before I jump into the main event, do not forget tomorrow, within an hour of the card finishing, USC Vegas Thoughts and Comments, my live reactions podcast. So as I've said, Chucking up a lot of questions in this preview for the co-main event. Biggest question is Cubs move down to bantamweight. Well, thoughts and comments is all about looking back with some hindsight. We'll have some answers to those questions and I'll be able to dive a little bit deeper 
So it should be a lot of fun, really keen for thoughts and comments. And then after that, we set our sights and attention on the biggest card of the year, USC 280. We've got Oliveira versus Markashev. We've got Dillashaw challenging for the belt up against Aljamain Sterling. You've got Pyotian, Sugarshaw Nomelli, Gamrot, Dariush. You've got Chukagan and Manon Fior. I mean, this card is stacked, stacked to the bloody rafters, if you ask me. So really, really keen to look forward to UFC 280. But of course, a couple of things to do first. The UFC Vegas 62 Thoughts and Comments podcast tomorrow. And of course, we have one fight remaining on this preview. So now, let's not waste any more time. Thank you for listening up until this point. And now it is time. Let's get amongst our main event of the evening. All right, last but certainly not least, we have our UFC Vegas 62 main event. Women's flyweight action between Alexa Grasso, the fifth-ranked UFC women's flyweight, up against the Brazilian Viviane Araujo. Now, that was a bit of a funky way for me to say it, wasn't it? Now, look, this naturally doesn't have that kind of main event hype that we are used to for a main event, but I'm actually really excited about this. It's a potential number one contenders fight, five rounds in the apex between the fifth-ranked Alexa Grasso, the sixth-ranked Viviane Araujo. That was not... That <laughs> got a bit too... Uh, a bit too fucking audacious there and totally butchered it, but whatever. Now, the winner of this one heads into 2023 with championship aspirations, no doubt. And look, both of them positioned very nicely to make their run. Now, firstly, you have Mexico's Alexa Grasso, who has not put a foot wrong since moving up to 125 in August 2020. The 29-year-old has made it three from three, surging into calculations for title contention along the way. She picked up a unanimous decision win over Ji-Yoon Kim, did Grasso, in her first flyweight bout. Then she moved on and got another win at UFC 258 February last year, that being a unanimous decision win over Macy the Future Barber. And then, most recently, in March of this year, Alexa Grasso, picked up a first-round submission over Joanne Wood. That really showed us that Alexa Grasso may very well be the real deal in the women's flyweight division. That win over Joanne Wood was enough to see Grasso claim her position inside the division's top five, and the next logical step is for Alexa to work toward a title shot. Firstly, though, Grasso is going to have to defend her position inside the top five, Enter Viviane Araujo. Again, Araujo. Sorry, fucking hell. We, we digress. You'd think I'd have the main event name down pat. Now, the fighter affectionately known as Vivi first entered the flyweight mix midway through 2019. She picked up a win over Alexis Davis. But then after that, she lost to Jessica I. Both of those results, unanimous decisions. So the win over Davis kind of immediately cancelled itself out. 
But since that point, it's been pretty steady from Araujo. She had two straight wins by decision over Montana De La Rosa, and then the always tough test of Roxanne Modafferi. But look, then when Viviane really had this chance to push toward a title shot, she lost to longtime contender Katlyn Chukagian, blonde fighter. Uh, and with that, Viviane Arujo kind of took a couple of steps back in the pecking order. But last time out, we saw the best version of Arujo yet. She got the unanimous decision win over Andrea KGB Lee. And now Arujo enters Vegas this weekend, hoping to really get in the mix. Last time she was in this position, she fell short, but now she finds herself yet again in the calculations. Now, this fight between Grasso and Araujo and the one between Chukagin and Manon Fior next weekend, they shape as the two fights that once the dust settles, we should know exactly who is next up to challenge Valentina Shevchenko for the flyweight championship. However, with this being a main event, five rounds, realistically, these two ladies are in pole position. The winner of this may very well be our next contender. Now, jumping into the profiles, starting with Viviane Vivi Araujo. She's 35 years old from Brazil, and she represents Cerrado MMA. Now, Viviane is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, as well as being a luta livre black belt, and Viviane carries a UFC record of five wins and two losses into this main event bout. As for Alexa Grasso, she is 29 years old from Mexico and representing Lobo Jim. Grasso predominantly is a boxer that is definitely her wheelhouse, uh, but she's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu purple belt as well, so very capable on the mat in her own right. And Grasso, she has a UFC record of 6-3, but she is a perfect 3-0 at 125 pounds. As far as the advantages go, the experience goes to Grasso, I believe. She's been in and amongst it for a little bit longer. I think she's also had the higher level of competition. I think Grasso as well is the better technical striker, although I would give the power and strength advantage to Viviani Araujo. I also believe Araujo has the much better grappling. She is a black belt, whilst Grasso is only a purple belt. But yeah, like I expect that definitely to help Araujo throughout this fight, but you only have to look back as recently as our last main event we saw between Mackenzie Dern, one of the best jiu-jitsu practitioners going in the world, especially female MMA. And she was up against Yan Xiaonan, who is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu blue belt, or maybe even a white belt. Uh, and she was able to stave off those attacks. It is mixed martial arts. But I think the difference here is that Araujo has a lot more of a danger factor on the feet than someone like Mackenzie Dern. She's not just looking to take the fight down to the mat. Araujo is also just as lethal on the feet. So stylistically, very interesting, but I would give the grappling advantage to Viviani, and she also has a slight reach advantage as well. As far as the rankings, 
Fifth up against sixth, as I've mentioned, look, they are right in line for a title shot. And an impressive victory positions one of these ladies for the first title shot of the new year. As far as finish factor goes, I've put it down as low. Of course, still absolutely a possibility that this one gets finished. You've also got to take into account two extra rounds. It's a 25-minute, five-round contest, which naturally does open up a more of an opportunity for a finish to take place. But at the same time, I just think that means these ladies are going to pace themselves a little bit more. And I do expect this one to go the distance. For Alexa Grasso, her boxing and her ability to get a knockout are one of her main paths to victory. So if she is looking for the finish here, knockout seems most likely for Alexa Grasso. Whilst Viviani Araujo, she's capable of wrapping it up by knockout or submission. So look, it's definitely not crazy to suggest that there could be a finish. I do feel as though this one is going to go the distance though. All six of Viviani Araujo's UFC flyweight fights have gone the distance, so there hasn't been a finish in any of them. The only finish throughout Viviani Araujo's UFC career, uh, that was a knockout win in the bantamweight division. So all six of her flyweight fights have gone the distance, and finish factor, in my opinion for this one, is relatively low. You've also got the title shot factor, both of these ladies, well, they've been waiting their entire lives, their entire career for a moment like this to catapult themselves into title contention. One or two wins for these ladies and they are there. They get the title shot. The more impressive the victory, well, the better chance they have of being challenging for that belt in their very next fight. So high stakes, a hell of a lot on the line in this one. We have a pretty intriguing main event, I must say. Now, getting pretty close to the end of this podcast. We're about to reach the two and a half hour mark, so let's, let's fucking get a move on, shall we? Now, professional records. Viviani Araujo's pro record standing at 11 wins and 3 losses. Key stat for Araujo, 7 stoppages from her 11 wins. So she does look to secure the stoppage. Um, but, yeah, it's fucking... Six of her UFC flyweight fights have gone to decision. So looking at the 11 wins for Viviani, three knockout victories, four submissions, and four decisions. And in terms of her three losses, two of those three by decision, and she has been knocked out once, uh, but I believe... Let me go check that. I got got it up on my phone. I believe that was pre-UFC. I don't think she's been knocked out uh, in the time that she's been in the UFC. Just having a look, yeah, so that loss was to Sarah Frota back in 2017. So she hasn't been finished since 2017, Viviani Araujo. Uh, That leads me to believe, like I said, that this fight goes the distance. Checking out the record of her opponent, Alexa Grasso. That stands at 14-3. and Two of Alexa's three losses also by decision. Uh, She has been submitted once. So it's interesting, for Viviani, her one finish loss over her career was a knockout loss, which you would kind of suggest if Alexa Grasso finishes this, it would be by knockout. And on the flip side of that, the only time Alexa Grasso has lost by stoppage is a submission. 
And when you think about if there's a stoppage for Viviani Araujo, how she would most likely get it, it would be submission. So I really like the stylistic matchmaking here. Now, in terms of the 14 wins for Alexa Grasso, nine of those have come by way of decision. She's had four knockout wins and only one submission win in her career, but that was last time out up against Joanne Wood. Now, stylistically, these two ladies are very closely matched across the board. I wonder if this does go the distance. Who's going to thrive during the championship rounds, rounds four and five, once the fatigue really does start to set in? Uh, they may have an idea of who's up on the scorecards as well. I think that's where this fight's going to be won and lost in rounds four and five. If Viviani can land some takedowns and multiple times throughout this fight, I think that could be enough to win her the fight. Obviously, the judges take a lot of stock in takedowns and control time. But for Grasso, she's got decent takedown defense and a really crisp striker. So for Alexa Grasso, she's got to make sure she doesn't get taken down too many times and that that could allow her to take kind of control and dictate the pace of this fight. Now, Araujo is the more powerful of the two. So if she does rock Alexa Grasso, that puts her in pole position to really get on top and control this fight. I think this one goes down to the wire. And in my opinion, the betting market does not truly reflect how closely matched these two are. Alexa Grasso, the $1.42 favorite. Viviane Araujo, $2.90. That is value. If you want to jump on some value underdog picks, Viviane Araujo, $2.90 head to head. To win by decision, $3.75. Here is some fucking value right here. $12 for Viviani to win by knockout and $17 for Viviani to win by submission. So look, there's a lot of value on Viviani Araujo. I really don't think that the odds reflect the nature of this contest. However, I'm taking Alexa Grasso. Maybe this might be a little bit biased because I'm a massive fan of hers. I'm a fan of Araujo as well. They've both won me some money. They've both helped me get my picks correct before. But yeah, this I find really hard to split. I think it's going to be close as hell. So I'm going to back in Alexa Grasso. And like I said, maybe a little bit of bias there. But I'm just a huge fan of Alexa Grasso. I will be cheering her on in this one. But do not count out Viviane Araujo. Whatever happens here, I think we get our contender out of this fight. And in the UFC Vegas 62 main event, I'm going to take Alexa Grasso by decision. Potentially even split decision. I think this one is going to be very, very close. I don't have a ton of confidence in this pick. I do think there's a huge chance that Araujo spoils the party. But in the end, got to make my pick. And that pick, Alexa Grasso by decision. So I don't believe I picked a submission win for anyone on this card, which I'm always nervous about. There's always got to be one, right? So I think maybe if there is a submission, uh, Tatsuru Taira in the on the preliminary card probably seems the most likely. But yeah, I'm always wary when I haven't picked a submission win. So it feels like that there's going to be at least one or two. So... I'm interested to see who can pick up a submission. I've gone Alexa Grasso by decision in the main event. 
And as I wrap up, look, I'll check back in on the Thoughts and Comments podcast tomorrow, the live reaction to all of the fights from the card. And we will see if there are some submissions. Really interested to see the results of the card. Hopefully, my picks can win us some money. If you do gamble, remember to do so responsibly. And if you don't, well, that is totally cool as well. It's great to just be able to sit down, watch, and enjoy the card. It's going to be an absolute banger, so I'm very much looking forward to it. With that being said, that has been UFC Vegas 62, the preview and predictions. If you enjoyed the podcast, the best way to support us is to give us a follow over on Instagram at Not Just a Sports Report and to follow us on whatever your preferred podcast platform is. You'll be able to see within an hour of the card tomorrow when the live reactions UFC thoughts and comments podcast is dropped. Very keen for that. The card not too far away and also in the midst of the Rugby League World Cup at the moment. So I'm I'm doing a little bit of an all-nighter situation. So now that I've finished this, it's time to move on to the next one, right? I've got a bloody lot on my plate. None of it is delicious food right now, unfortunately. So now we turn our attention to the card itself. Hopefully these picks can give you some insight into your own picks, your own choices, if you're going to have a bit of a dabble on the punt for this card. And tomorrow we'll check back in on the Thoughts and Comments podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening. Take care of yourselves. And most importantly, enjoy the bloody fights tomorrow.